Welcome to The Journal with Diago, a podcast in which we feature various organizations centered around gender-based violence and mental health inside and outside of the South Asian diaspora. For this episode, we are interviewing Amita Swadhan from Mirror Memoirs. Would you like to introduce yourself? Yeah, thank you so much for having me on, Krisha. It's nice to meet you. My name is Amita. I use they and them pronouns. And I guess I'm most known these days for being the founder and co-executive director of Mirror Memoirs. We are a national storytelling and organizing project that I started back in 2016, and we're intervening in rape culture and specifically in the pandemic of child sexual abuse by uplifting the stories, healing, and leadership of LGBTQ, Black, Indigenous, and of color child sexual abuse survivors. We've grown a lot in the last six years since we were founded, and we now have a network of 650 members at that intersection of survivorship and a pretty large national network of accomplices and supporters. And quite a few of our board members and storyteller members are also South Asian American. So it's been really gratifying for me to create something that is about the healing of my own people as a survivor, as a queer and non-binary person myself, but that is also really clearly rooted in the liberation of people who have been historically oppressed through the creation of the United States, very specifically Black and Indigenous people, and especially those who are gender nonconforming. Yeah, thank you so much for joining us today. I'm excited to learn more about Mirror Memoirs. And already, as you were saying, you guys have done a lot of work in the past six years. And I think it's very important what you guys have contributed to our community and to people that are undergoing these kind of situations. So I think organizations like yours are really important for people to have access to and know about. So just to go into the founding, how was Mirror Memoirs founded in 2016? Well, I've been in the work to end child sexual abuse for a really long time in one way or another. It really started with looking for places where I could heal and not finding what I needed all the way back to when I was an undergrad. I went to college in Washington, D.C., and on my campus, there was a lot of dialogue. I think I'm a little older than you. I'm 44. So I was in college in the mid to late 90s. And at that time, and I think still, a lot of the dialogue around sexual assault and survivorship for college students was specifically based on date rape and on partner violence and going out in public as a college student. And nothing was addressing the fact that many of us enter high school or college institutions of education already having experienced sexual violence. You know, for me, I'm an incest survivor and my survivorship started when I was four. So by the time I was a freshman in college, I had already survived so much and I really needed support to be able to heal with other child sexual abuse survivors. And I didn't realize that there were so many around, right? The statistics around child sexual abuse survivorship, according to the US CDC, the Centers for Disease Control, are one in four girls and one in six boys. And their statistics are even higher in the South Asian diaspora. For example, in 2007, I believe, in India, the Ministry of Women and Children's Welfare commissioned a study around child sexual abuse, asking adults for self-reported data around survivorship. And the rate that they found is about one in two people in India are child sexual abuse survivors. And it's roughly the same, slightly higher for men than for women. It's about 52% of men and just slightly under that for women. So when we think about 
migration patterns of diaspora, we have to understand that without a direct intervention of healing in our, in our lineages, we're bringing that trauma with us when we emigrate, right? And so I was sort of in the middle of all of that. I didn't know any of those statistics when I was a 17-year-old freshman in college. I just knew that I wasn't okay. And I was having trouble focusing on my schoolwork. And it was my first time away from home. I was living, you know, I grew up in northern New Jersey. So I was living like five hours away from home. And, you know, wasn't able to just relax and enjoy my experience as a student. And there was nothing, like I said, on campus to make me aware that I was surrounded by other survivors completely. So my work, like a lot of survivors you know, who have experienced living on a college campus, for me, Take Back the Night was my introduction to survivor work. And then because I was in Washington, D.C., I had the experience of interning at the U.S. Department of Justice Violence Against Women office two or three years after that office had first started. And it's been a really long journey since then. I think one of the most important things that I'd like to name is that for about 22 years now, I've very much seen myself as an abolitionist. Abolition of prisons, abolition of police, abolition of the carceral system, abolition of state-led psychiatric institutions, and abolition of mandated reporting, and understanding that all of that is very necessary if we want to end all forms of rape and sexual assault. But I didn't always know that, didn't always have that political clarity, because of course we're all um, meant to follow the plan, the socialization of the United States, right? We're all meant to believe that prisons and police are going to save us. And the more I got into organizing work when I graduated college, soon after that, I moved home to northern New Jersey. And then soon after 9-11, I moved into New York City. And I was a youth organizer for 12 years. I worked in Brooklyn public high schools through an after school program during the time of Giuliani and then Bloomberg becoming our mayors. And they dealt with um, Black neighborhoods especially, and other poor neighborhoods of color, neighborhoods with poor immigrants of color as well, by increasing the number of armed police officers in public high schools. And so I got to see firsthand that so many of the young people, I worked with over 5,000 young people during that time, and I got to see how many of them were child sexual abuse survivors, had experienced different kinds of abuse in their homes and in their communities. And then on top of it, they were being abused by the police in their schools, right? Including being sexually assaulted by police, sexually harassed by police, of course, physically assaulted and intimidated by police and criminalized, right? Many of them were getting records for getting into a fight in school. And I, having grown up in the suburbs, understood like, oh, in my school, when I was a kid, that same fight would have resulted in like a suspension or a detention. But for these kids, they were now in the school to prison pipeline. So it's been a really long arc, you know, and I would say the, the way I got funding to create Mirror Memoirs six years ago dates all the way back to some work I did with an off-off Broadway theater company in New York City just about 12 years ago. That company is called Ping Chong and Company, and they have a model called Undesirable Elements that they've been doing for over 20 years, where they interview different people, about five or six different people, whose lives intersect around a shared identity or experience. And then they weave those stories together into a show. There's no actors in the show. The people who shared their stories actually perform in a theatrical project. And I asked them when I was in graduate school and had PTSD elevations and it was making it hard for me to do my work, I knew I had to 
finally come out very publicly as a child sexual abuse survivor. I had always been out to my friends and my lovers, obviously my family. I'm only in touch with my mom's side of the family. And we've been on a healing journey together for many years now, almost 30 years. But I had never come out very publicly, right? It had always been a compartmentalized experience of my survivorship. And I think for a lot of people, you know, there's there's many different ways to be on a healing journey. For me, the compartmentalization wasn't working. It felt like very similar to what I've heard people who are closeted queer people talk about like the pressure of the closet. I was in a survivor closet. And so I thought that creating a theater project with Ping Chong and company with other adult survivors of child sexual abuse would allow me to finally just integrate my life completely. And we created a show together called Secret. It got some national attention and certainly a lot of attention in New York City where I lived still at the time. It got made into a film and we created a curriculum guide with it as well. And that all came out in 2012. And there was a foundation that supported that work that later then started a new program called the Just Beginnings Collaborative. And in 2016, the Just Beginnings Collaborative started a fellowship specifically for Black, Indigenous and of color child sexual abuse survivors to be able to do our work full time. And so I got that fellowship. It was four years of funding. And my research project, which became a giant national organization slowly with all of the members' input, my research project was about surveying whose voices had already been left out for many years in movements to end sexual violence. Ten years ago, the American Academy of Pediatrics published a study saying that gender nonconformity is a risk factor for childhood sexual assault. And so what you would think is that we would be seeing trans people, non-binary people, and especially those who are Black, Indigenous, undocumented, disabled, right, already vulnerable communities that we know are targeted through the violence of rape and sexual assault. I would think, based on that American Academy of Pediatrics study, that we would see those folks in the leadership of mass-based movements to end sexual violence. And the reality is that largely trans people and especially trans women have been left out of that leadership almost completely until very recent years. And so I wanted to create a story archive that would help more people in cisgender communities, more people in white communities, more people in class privileged communities understand the way that rape culture lands first and foremost on people living at the intersections of blackness, of indigenous identity, of trans identity, of poverty, right? And how all of that, th that existence is criminalized by the state. And that's, you know, to me, a very clear argument for why any movements to end sexual violence have to follow the journey of abolition and be part of that movement to end prisons and police in order to end all forms of rape. So that's a very long answer about how and why I got into this work and hopefully helping folks understand why Mirror Memoirs does our work the way that we do it. Your story is very inspiring to hear like the journey that you have had throughout like the past years 
that you've been involved in making social change and actually being a part of abolition. And I actually, um, I just want to touch on what you were saying before, how like when you were younger, like 17, a freshman in college, there were not many resources for people that were child sexual abuse survivors. You didn't really know where to go from there. And I definitely agree with you because even like in our like high school health classes, like a lot of them, they'll talk about like what happens in college, like those situations you'll put in, but they fail to touch upon that many people are already in those kind of situations and how to access those resources. So I feel like if we really also like incorporate stuff at the school level, instead of, as you were saying, like when people are in these situations, it's very hard to get out of it, especially being younger and being that age. So I think if we actually implement those kind of resources, it could really benefit like a lot of people around us. But the work that you've done is, is so amazing. You did so much. Like it's actually, it's so great to hear that you've been so involved in the community and were able to share vulnerable parts of you with others in order to uplift others. So Mirror Memories really focuses on storytelling and like the stories of survivors. So I just wanted to ask what role do you think a storytelling does play for the community and like just for you in general? Great question. I think that because child sexual abuse happens in secrecy and in isolation, and many of the mainstream media depictions of child sexual abuse either glorify that violence, right? Like, look at the House of Dragons show. It's complete glorification of incest, right? Or a lot of storylines are not written by survivors, and so they really sensationalize the violence instead of talking about it as a public health issue, as an endemic form of violence in our society and actually globally as well. I think that survivor-led storytelling and again especially at the intersections of oppression, especially with the clarity of abolition as a politic and a practice, that kind of storytelling is always going to be necessary to help more people imagine a different world. Because if we can't imagine a different possibility, then we can't unmake the current world that we're in, you know? And so I think, how else do we imagine except through storytelling? Like human beings, since ancient times, prehistoric times, the most human thing to do is to sit around a fire and tell stories. Before we had written languages, we had oral history. We are storytelling creatures. And there's actually science around neurons in our brain that are called mirror neurons, which is partly where the name mirror memoirs comes from. And there's some, you know, neuroscience around when a person sits down with another human being, and one person is ready to tell their story vulnerably and honestly and openly to the person in front of them. And the listener is listening open hearted and grounded and believes the person in front of them. There's trust and care there. What happens when we're listening and speaking in that storytelling dyad is mirror neurons get activated in our brain. And it's a way that our brain can deepen empathy. It's a way that our brain can deepen intimacy. We are meant to be social creatures. You know, we are wired for care through storytelling, understanding through storytelling. So I think I would just like to start there. Like, of course, I have a relationship in a personal way about what has the technology of storytelling done for me in my own journey to my freedom. But we're all wired for that. You know, we all are meant to be storytelling creatures. And unfortunately, a lot of us grow up in homes and communities where we don't have the right support to be listened to, especially as children, right? We live in an incredibly ageist, adultist society in which children around the world are mostly considered 
the property of our parents, you know, that's both cultural and in some places it's legal as well. And I think about that all the time. You know, I tried to talk about the violence that was happening to me at least a few times when I was a child and there weren't the right adults around ready to receive that kind of truth telling from a child. So I think on a very personal note, storytelling and not giving up telling my story, trying again in different ways over a number of years, you know, is what helped me break my family apart in a way that needed to happen, right? My father was incredibly violent with me. He was also incredibly violent with my mother. They had a very stereotypical storybook violence relationship. My father was eight years older than my mother. Both of my parents are immigrants from India, but they met in the United States. My dad had only known my mom for three months before they got married. And my mom was really unprotected and very naive. She eloped with my dad behind her mom's back. She grew up in a single mother household. She did not have extended family members here. She just had her mom and sister and her sister is younger than her. And so my 18 year old mother was sort of like immediately snatched up by this 26 year old man who was incredibly violent. And they moved soon after they got married away from my grandmother. So my mom became even more isolated. She was only 19 when I was born. So we were really like experiencing his violence in different ways side by side, you know, and she had to get her own job. My parents had a shop for many years, like shopkeepers, essentially, and we were pretty working class and then later lower middle class in Queens and then later in Ocean City, Maryland, and then eventually in a small like blue collar town in northern New Jersey. And it wasn't until the shop failed and my parents both had to get employed at other places that my mother started to have her own income. She worked at a doctor's office as like an admin person and later an office manager, and it was having that income that allowed her to finally put the necessary steps in place to slowly leave my father. And it took her 16 years. And the community around her was not very supportive. I grew up in the largest Indian American population in the United States, right? And unfortunately, I think storytelling is also about like reworking community norms that don't serve everyone, right? Values around like, are we so ashamed of divorce more than we are ashamed of women and children being mistreated, right? That was the primary value in our South Asian community when I was a child and growing up. And I'm glad that there seems to be less stigma around divorce and single parenthood now than when I was a kid in the 80s. But my mom was so worried about the loss of her standing in community, the loss of support from community. And it was the fear of gossip. Gossip is a form of storytelling too, right? The fear of people telling stories about my mother that kept her in an abusive marriage for so long. It was for me a way of healing and changing and remaking my family through telling my story though that also allowed me to slowly get the resources that I needed. We were able to get my father out of our house when I was 15 and then by the time I was 16 he was completely out of our lives. And none of that would have happened had I not brave enough to tell my story. And I had to tell it a couple times. Like I said, I told when I was four, the first time that I was assaulted. And then I told later when I was 13 in an effort to protect my sister, who's four years younger than me. And when I was 13, my mother had her own job and her own money. And she was finally able to hear me differently, to do something differently. She had the support that she needed and some economic independence. So Stories are everything.
particularly for survivors of violence. And then, of course, later in college, into my adulthood, and even still today, telling my story is a way that I'm able to connect deeply with other survivors, right? It's how I have found a community of, I can even name on a couple different hands, like specifically other queer, non-binary, South Asian, femme, incest survivors, right? And I have been able to cultivate a sub-community in the Mirror Memoirs community of people who are exactly like me at that same intersection, which has been important for my healing to not feel so isolated. So stories can help us weave new communities, new places of belonging. When my community of origin, unfortunately, was an unsafe place for me, I've been able to remake a different kind of South Asian community for myself as an adult, which are places of safety and healing and resistance to oppression and taking care of one another, you know, and all of that has been possible only through telling each other our stories, you know? Yeah, definitely. Thank you so much for sharing that. And another thing that I was thinking about that you were saying is that like, because of the ageism that so many kids do face, they are silenced, and they are not able to come forward. Like, as you were saying, when you were younger, like, it took you like a lot of times before you were actually heard by the people around you. And I think that plays a big part because like when we're younger, people are like, oh, you don't need to take them seriously. They don't really know what they're saying. But a lot of times it's these stories that younger people say that need to be addressed and that those people do need to get out of those situations. And I'm really glad that you and your mother were able to get out of that dangerous situation because being in that for 16 years, it sounds completely awful. And I'm glad that your mother was able to gain that income. And I feel like and you also played such a key role in coming forward and being brave, because especially at 13, to have like that level of like consciousness that you need to help your sister and all of that, which is very brave of you. And with storytelling, I think we all have this inner urge to connect with each other and to find groups of people that are similar to us, as you were saying in the Mirror Memoir community, that we have this like human made thing where we want to be heard by others, but also show empathy toward people that are in our same situation. I feel like it's not very one-sided for all of us. We all do want to help each other. And I think that's exactly what Mirror Memoirs does. And just to get more into like, the people of Mirror Memoirs, who are the people that make up your advisory board and what roles do they contribute to this organization? Great question. So Mirror Memoirs, we have always had an advisory council, even when it was just a fellowship project for four years where I thought I was just building an audio archive. The first thing I did was sit down six friends of mine who are all queer and or trans, black, indigenous and of color child sexual assault survivors, because I said, I don't want to do this just based on my own perspective and my own identities and experiences, right? I can't speak for all queer and trans people of color. I would never try to. And my experience is my own. Um, and these were six people, Koyama, Bambi Salcedo, Sri Panchalam, Treva Ellison, Ladon Best, you know, people who have been in the work of liberation for a really long time. Luna Merbruja as well is the sixth person who actually became our founding board chair. And I was really lucky to have their guidance in six years of the project. We have now developed into a bigger organization. We have nonprofit fiscal sponsorship status. And we've really, like I said in the beginning, expanded our membership base. Our model is well beyond just an audio archive. We have our own theater project called Transmutation. During COVID, we started a whole member support fund program where we raise money from our more 
privileged members and supporters, and we redistribute it to the poorest and most vulnerable members among us. So we've given $500 grants to 200 trans and non-binary Black, Indigenous, and of color child sexual abuse survivors in the last two years. We have monthly member meetings virtually that started during the pandemic. We have an abolition book club where anyone who wants to learn more about abolition can come. And we have guest speakers, authors attend that as well. Um, So we've really, really grown uh, even through this pandemic. And we have a, a different set of nine people on our advisory board. All of our board members are other queer, trans and intersex, black, indigenous and of color child sexual abuse survivors. However, because our community is institutionally and societally oppressed, we know that we couldn't raise the money that we need to run a large national organization just alone. So we also have something called a leadership council, which is where our accomplices who want to help us fundraise and raise awareness and education can apply. And we have eight wonderful people who are accomplices to our work serving on our leadership council as well. And then I have an amazing co-executive director, Jaden Fields, who happens to be a Black, queer, trans man from Los Angeles, who has been involved in the project since year two, since 2017. He's told his story in the archive. He came to our first convening. We usually do a national conference every year. So he came to the first one. He helped me run the second one. He got trained as a researcher to look in the transcripts of the 60 recorded stories and start pulling out some of the themes and building programming and building curriculum based on the stories. And he's really been such a partner in building Mirror Memoirs with me. We finally raised the money to hire him full time in December of 2020. And I could not be luckier to have such a great co-pilot in the work. So all in all, in our leadership team of staff, board and leadership council, there's about 20 of us steering the organization. And we meet quarterly as a team. And then we meet once a year in person when COVID allows to have an annual strategic planning retreat. And like I said, we do have about 650 members at the intersections of being LGBTQI people of color who are survivors as well. Yeah, I'm so glad that you are able to have like all these amazing people coming together, contributing their their own work and their own skills in order to form Mirror Memories. And I'm really excited to see the further work that Mirror Memories does in the future. And I would definitely love to stay in touch just to hear more about what you guys do. Because I know you were saying like you were like a 17 year old freshman who didn't know like a lot of these like statistics and stuff. And like, I'm 17 right now. I learned so much from this episode, like just to be fully honest, I have learned so much about all these statistics about what needs to be done. And I've never actually thought about ageism playing such a big role. I've never really thought about it in this situation where because so many people are silenced, people are not really able to come forward. So I'm really glad that you were able to share your story and how this organization was founded. And thank you so much for teaching actually so much to me. No, you're welcome. And I just want to uplift and congratulate you for being, you know, already active in the work that you're doing at 17. It took thousands of years to create a world of rape culture. And whether or not people who are listening are survivors, the reality is 100% of us have been raised in rape culture. Statistically speaking, everybody is either a survivor or is the loved one of a survivor of child sexual abuse. And the fact that you're already joining up in that work, right, makes me really happy because I know that we're not going to end child sexual abuse in my lifetime. So it's part of my work to teach younger people everything I've learned and then to pass the baton and say, like, take it even farther, take the movement even farther. 
I also want to say you're already on the right track. Like what you were saying about why is this not taught in schools is something that has been raised at policy tables before. You know, I used to work for a different national organization that provided health education in ninth grade classrooms. And the curriculum of the program that our team was teaching already included awareness about date rape and awareness about teen dating violence. And I said to the person who had the authority to approve curriculum, what if we also included as a social justice and public health issue, the rate of child sexual abuse so that anyone going to class that day could just understand, hey, one in four girls and one in six boys in the United States experience this violence. Gender nonconforming youth actually experience it at even higher rates. That's an American Academy of Pediatrics statistic. In 2008, the International Journal of Child Abuse and Neglect published a study saying that most children and teenagers who are survivors of child sexual abuse, if they tell anyone, they only tell an age peer meaning another child or teenager, and then they never speak about it again. So if we don't teach child sexual abuse awareness, prevention, and tools for healing and peer support in schools, all we're doing is leaving children completely unequipped to hold the disclosure that undoubtedly most of them are getting from their friends, right? Like you all are already talking to each other as young people about what you're living through, and that includes... Teenagers, you know, I told one of my best friends when I was in high school about the violence I was living through, and she turned around and disclosed to me. And I hadn't understood or known that she was a survivor as well. And we didn't know how to support one another. But if we taught about child sexual abuse survivorship the same way we teach in schools about addiction and how to prevent it and how to respond if someone is, you know, struggling with addiction. Today, in good health classes, people learn about depression, they learn about the signs of suicidal ideation, they learn what they can do to support other young people, and especially teenagers who are struggling in that way. Like, you are absolutely right to be raising the question of like, why can't we talk about this in schools as well? And unfortunately, when I raised this with Los Angeles Unified School District about 10 years ago, I was told, well, if we start to teach that, then it's going to unleash a giant Pandora's box of disclosures that our teachers are not ready to handle. And so I think to the adults listening to this podcast, you know, part of undoing ageism is to say our comfort as adults cannot be more important than the safety and well-being of teenagers and children. So thank you guys all for listening to this episode of Jago Hudson. I had such an amazing time talking with Amita and all the work that they do as a part of Mirror Memoirs. And I hope that you guys definitely check out Mirror Memoirs. We'll leave all the links in the bio and definitely stay tuned for further episodes. Thanks so much, Krisha, for having me on. If folks want to find more about us, we're at mirrormemoirs.com. We're on Instagram at mirror.memoirs, on Twitter at Mirror Memoirs, and we're on Facebook and LinkedIn too.